Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother, Wesley Lowry. But before I get into our conversation with Wes, I wanted to talk about this power sharing agreement that a lot of individuals have been talking about between Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer and now Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. This is the first big fight of the Biden administration in this congressional session. The outcome of this fight around the power sharing agreement will affect literally everything that's possible for the first half of the Biden administration. In case you missed it, as is customary at the beginning of every Congress, the Senate establishes the rules for the next two years. This power sharing agreement or organizing resolution, as you may hear it described in the press, sets forth how the parties share power in a 50-50 Senate. Everything from committee to the all-important question of whether or not progress will require 60 votes or a simple majority of 50 votes. And until there's such an agreement, Republicans still control Senate committees, even though Democrats control the agenda for floor votes. I'm going to say that again because I know most of you thought that when Warnock and Ossoff were sworn in, that mean we controlled everything at that moment. But a true majority where we control everything only happens once a power sharing agreement is in place. And we don't have one now. So what that means is the Senate committees that will consider President Biden's nominees, for example, are still run by Republicans. And until there is a power sharing agreement, new senators like Ossoff and Warnock can't be seated on committees. So we need this deal. But Mitch is holding it up. And why is he holding it up? Because he wants Democrats to put in the agreement that they won't get rid of the filibuster, and Democrats are rightly pushing back. First, if it's not clear by now, if Mitch McConnell wants something, we should oppose it. So Chuck Schumer should absolutely not agree to any concessions to Mitch McConnell, especially regarding the filibuster, because the filibuster needs to go. And I won't rehash here the racist roots of the filibuster. It's well documented that the filibuster was a tool often used by Southern Democrats to fight civil rights legislation, and it's a Jim Crow relic that should die now. Second, Mitch McConnell is playing with House money and has nothing to lose. What I mean here is that he has no incentive to even agree to a power-sharing agreement. He doesn't want to see a COVID relief package. He doesn't want to see a recovery package. He doesn't care if Biden gets his appointees. Why? Because if he can derail a Biden administration the same way he derailed a part of the Obama administration simply by delays, he'll do it. And if he can make the case that Democratic power doesn't translate into progress, he can win back his Senate majority in 2022. So he has no real reason to cooperate. But he does know that if Democrats eliminate the filibuster, they'll actually deliver for Americans and will keep winning. Republicans know they can't win if Democrats lead, so they'll obstruct. And these negotiations allow Mitch to hold progress hostage. So what should Schumer do? And how can Mitch McConnell do this when we won and we only need 50 votes to pass a power sharing agreement? Because McConnell knows that Schumer doesn't have 50 votes to pass a power sharing agreement right now because of two people. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema. These are the two moderate Democrats who hold the real power because Republicans aren't crossing over. And Schumer can't count on them to eliminate the filibuster or even a power-sharing agreement that leaves the elimination of the filibuster open. So if you're keeping score, the people empowering Mitch McConnell right now are, wait for it, other Democrats. My friends in the press need to cover this and call these two out because Mitch, as minority leader, only has the power we give him. And these two Democrats are holding up progress and they should be called out for it. And that's that on that. Now on to a conversation which is so dope with my good friend, Wesley Lowry. 
This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. And it's not a rivalry because in order for it to be a rivalry, somebody like the other team has to win. Like it has to actually be in the game. (laughs) Like I remember it was like one month before, I mean, it must've been February last year. And I was doing an interview with someone and they're like, well, do you want to zoom? And I'm like, what is that? Like, literally, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this. Like, what do you like? And, and then fast forward four weeks and I spent like nine hours a day on Zoom. And I'm like, where did this company come from? Like, what, what is this? It wasn't prepared either. Zoom was just like, they got caught with their pants down. Literally, everybody was hacking it. They had no security. You were just out there doing whatever you wanted to do. No, and there was like no, and everyone was on these like free trials that got cut off after like 40 minutes. minutes or it 40 was, minutes. Yeah. And, and, they, and yet they like built this, they got every person in the country to download a new app in like, <laughs> like a two month period. Look, I want that. In, I want to. I want to read that inside story. It's just fascinating to me, right? How they versus Skype that like we'd all been using Skype for a decade at that point. And we we're all immediately like, nope, we're good. We're gonna go. I mean, to Zoom Skype now. is Skype is like Zoom, and then like WebEx and Skype on the same playing field together. Yeah, it's 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 wild. Yeah, that's wild. So anyway, got you guys. You you heard me and uh, Wesley talking about the Zoom versus Skype wars, <laughs> but I want to introduce to the Bakari Sellers podcast. We have some brilliant writers and journalists, authors, et cetera, who, who grace us with their presence. But today I got my good friend, Wesley Lowry. What's going on, brother? Not too much. Hanging out in D.C. I mean, we're talking, what, on the last day of the Trump presidency, right before inauguration. And Correct. so, it, you know, what's really interesting is both with the insurrection a week and a half ago and now inauguration, I'm getting all these calls and texts from everybody. Um, like, are you all right? What's going on? Are you safe? <laughs> And I always tell them, I'm like, yo, I live in black DC. The Proud Boys aren't coming over here. I'm I'm fine. I told the Proud Boys <laughs> if they would have gone like five minutes in the other direction past the Capitol. It would have been a it, real, it would have been a real problem. And that's, that, and that, <laughs> that wasn't no insurrection. That <laughs> is, don't let your president get you these hands territory. That's no, correct. That um, we're sitting in the house and we're, you know, I'm out on the porch doing Zooms. My neighbors are blasting go-go and cooking out. Like we're fine. <laughs> like, like it's fine. <laughs> like there's only okay. insurrection in certain parts. Look, I, I start each episode of this show the same way because people are always, I got a lot of young people who listen and they're always enamored by our guest and they want to know how you ended up where you are so walk us through the arc of your career and you've had stints at a number of major outlets some lasted longer than others but from the la times to your stop in between to now your work with cbs news and your other projects sure so i've been kind of all over you know i got really lucky in that i knew what i wanted to do really young i happened to be good at that thing and i was able to kind of keep going right and so i worked for i was such a dork and a nerd i still am right uh, but in middle school and high school i worked for the middle school newspaper and the high school newspaper i was skipping all my high school classes to hang out in the newspaper 
And then I went to college and from day one was working for the college newspaper, skipping all my college classes to work at the college paper. So I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a storyteller. And the thing about journalism is like, and I always say this, it's not an academic field, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a book learning field. In a lot of ways, it's more like a trade. Right. You pick it up and oh, wow. the more and the more reps you put in, the better you are. Right. And so you look at journalism. I think of it like being a mechanic almost. Right. There's you could watch a YouTube video to teach you how to change the oil in your car. Right. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily be good at it or get it yeah. the right way. And by the time you change oil 100 times, you start realizing what the YouTube video doesn't have. Well, on this type of car, actually, you have to do it this way or on this. You got journalism's the same way. Right. You've got interviewing reporting, story selection, right? Writing, those are like the four tenets. And editing, because some and of editing, y'all just right? need, to ed- y'all need to edit a little more. Correct. <laughs> and each one of those things, you could write a how-to guide to do it. You could make a YouTube step-by-step, this is how you write, this is how, but the reality is you put those reps in and you figure out where to break the rules, how to get better. Your hundred stories are always gonna be better than your first, your million stories gonna be better than your hundred. And so, so much of it's about putting reps in. And so I got really lucky you know, I knew really young that I, this is what I wanted to do. I, w- I still benefit from those middle school reps. Like I got, I was doing interviews when I was 13 or 14. So I was getting used to how to do yeah. that or how to. And so anyway, I, I did all that. I interned a ton in college. Every summer I was doing an internship. And so I was at the, you know, and it was a ladder, right? The unpaid weekly newspaper in Cleveland where I was having to drive an hour and a half both ways and not making mm. any money and having to work 40 hours the other days of the week to the Detroit News where I was doing a late night copy editing internship. And then, and then I worked it with them where I could also do a little bit of writing on the side. So like I would come in on other days so I could also write in addition to the copy editing. Then I was at the Columbus Dispatch for like a semester. I was out of school for a bit and went there to, to write. And from there, I went to the Wall Street Journal for a summer. That was a total experience. That has to be different. Is that is that a different ball game than the free press or dispatch? Totally, or? totally. So we, we, we forget sometimes is that, you know, the Wall Street Journal at the time, I think still today, was like the biggest circulation newspaper in the country. Correct. Um, and maybe internationally, right? Massive circulation. I think USA Today and, and Wall Street Journal are like one. Yeah, they're like, right, like they're like right up yeah. there, right? And at the time when I was coming up, the talk was like all the local papers are closing, but business journalism is where the money is. It's the only place to go. It's the only you have you have to know business journalism. That's the only way you're ever gonna get a job. And so we were all all these students like like I don't know anything about business or finance. Like and I'm like nope, I gotta get a business journalism internship. So I'm get this journal internship. I covered corporate real estate for the summer. When I I'll tell you, I was home at my parents' house in Cleveland maybe a year ago, and I found my old clip package from that summer of all the pieces I wrote. I read those pieces now, and I don't even understand what I wrote. Like, I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in here about apartment rent rates and, like, the debt in Puerto Rico, and I, I don't know any of this stuff anymore. So I do that first summer, totally different ballgame, right? Yeah. But it was really important. I got to be honest, it was really important for me in a, almost in an ego sense. And I don't even mean that in a, in a bad way. Or with no, it gave you confidence. It gave you confidence. Correct. I had worked like at the biggest place in the country. I had done it. I'd figured out how to do it. And so now, all right, I've kind of proven I can do this thing. What do I want to do? And so the next summer, that summer, when I went to the journal, it was between the journal and the Boston Globe. The Globe had also given me an offer. And the Boston Globe, one of the best papers in the country, but they also famously have one of the best internship programs in the country. And so they 
um, because they like put you to work, put you to work. You go there for the summer and you write 60 pieces, right? I mean, you're all over the place and you're all over New England. They're having you drive up to Maine and Vermont. And so I was like, I want that. So the next summer I went to Boston and just hustled for a summer, uh, worked there, did all this coverage, went out to the LA Times for six months, which was one of the wildest and most fun experiences I've ever had. Boston right? LA is different. Boston, yes. Boston, LA was very different. Uh, I'd never been to LA. I remember, you know, look, my family's all in the Midwest. We'd live in the East Coast for a little bit. My mom and my people are like, you don't even know anyone in LA. Why would you want to go out there? What's your, and I was always tell people, I was like, the worst case scenario is it doesn't go well. I don't like it. I moved back in six months. And then for the rest of my life, I tell a story about the six months I lived in LA right after college, right? But that's not even what happened. I went to LA, had a great time, worked there. I got to cover entertainment for two months, which was just totally wild. So I'm at like, um, I'm 22 years old, 23 years old in a rented tux at Elton John's Oscar party, right? I'm at YouTube studios with Matt Damon as he's making some PS, you know, like I got to do this stuff that are still some of the coolest stories I've got. And then at, at the end of those six months, Boston Globe called me back and said, hey, you want a full-time gig? Come out here. We want you covering politics. That's what I wanted to do. Mm. So I flew back. I immediately regretted it. I landed in Boston. It was right before St. Patrick's Day when I moved back. And I'm wearing like shorts and a hoodie from LA. And I landed Logan in Boston and it's snowing. They're having like it's a freezing. March snowstorm. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, what yeah, is yeah. this? But ended up, you know, in Boston at the Globe for about a year, year and a half. One month after I got there was the Boston Marathon bombings. And I was on the team that covered that. A month after that, there's a Senate race because John Kerry had become Secretary of State. State so, it was the, so it was a special election. It was when Ed Markey got elected. I was covering that. It happened to be my metro shift uh, to cover cops and courts. And we get a call about a murder that's happened. A man named Odin Lloyd has been killed. Turns oh, out wow, he's been sorry. killed by yeah. Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez, yeah. And so I ended up being one of the early reporters on the Aaron Hernandez story. Um, and so suddenly I'm doing national TV hits. I'm writing stories that are being, you know, like. I mean, but but let's let's put a pause on that real quick because I I was fascinated, especially right now, by print journalists who transition to television. Yeah. And when historically many print journalists used to stay in print and TV journalists stayed on TV, you're part of a new generation of journalists that move between television and print seamlessly. Is that dexterity the expectation now for journalists? I think so. You ha you have to be do you have to be able to do a little bit of everything, right? And so. Because journalism is platform agnostic. And let's, right? let's, let's actually, let's also, because you have two of us who are on TV, I want people to remember that I am not a journalist. And people can, <laughs> people conflate yeah. that often. I, I get paid to give my opinion. You, on the other hand, talk about your role on TV as you see. Sure. No, so, so, my, so my role is to provide, I think, reported analysis and reporting, to interview people, to talk to folks, to, now look, there are times when, if I've covered something over the course of a year, over six months, someone might turn to me and say, hey, what do you think is going to happen here? What what have you heard about this thing? So you, but, can, you can definitely do that on criminal justice and cops killing people. Sure, right? It's like, I know a thing or two about it. I've, yeah. I've done this. I've covered it. And so and so I'm not just spouting off, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. well, actually, I've talked to this police chief before. And, you know, in general, his, his feelings are X, Y, and Z. Or this shooting reminds me of X, Y, and Z. Right, and it's right. similar in these ways, right? And so that analysis is important. But also, again, like I think my role as a journalist is how do we bring, especially at a time when facts are kind of like there's a war on facts <laughs> and like information and, and truth. How do we bring that information? You know, how do we go talk to the person? How do we add more information to the conversation? 
right? How mm -hmm. do we go talk to the grand juror in this case or the legislator who did X, Y, and Z so that you can then provide an opinion on what they just said, right? It's, correct, it's correct. kind of feeding that conversation. So that's what I see. Uh, but to your question, to your original question, I think journalists today kind of have to do it all. Right. You've got to be willing and, 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 you know, it's not just comfortable and it's not just trained. Look, I'm not trained to do television and my main yeah, and job I mean, I'm not, I'm not is either, with CBS so yeah. News through 60 yeah. Minutes. Right. And, and so it's not just about having the ability. It's about having the willingness. For a long time, newspaper reporters were like, no, nah, I'm a newspaper. I'm a writer. I don't do that. I don't do that flashy TV stuff. And I'm not going to have a Facebook page. I'm, we, we know how none of that worked out very well. Correct. For, and, and so, I mean, it led to the it, it helped with the death of some of these newspapers. Of course. And so what we have to do today is a good story is a good story. Good journalism is good journalism. It's platform agnostic. And so I'll do, you know, I've done podcasts. I've done short form on camera. I've done longer form on camera. I write magazine pieces, newspaper pieces, investigations. And I think a big part of it, especially for young people, is you got to think about, you want to have as many tools in your toolbox as possible. Correct. You want to be able to, and so what I want is I want people to be able to say, uh, now I, there are some projects today, there's some people in a room and they're about to give a million dollars to someone to do the next, whatever it is, the next serial, the next how to make yep, a murderer, yep. the next one. And they're going, who could host this? Or who should be the journalist? Or who, who should be? And I don't ever want to give those people a reason to pick someone else. I'm right there. I'm, I'm caught, my agent right now. I'm like, look, they're going to need yeah. somebody to give some analysis and some right? opinion on this. Yeah. And so I want them to be able to say, oh, well, he does magazine work. Oh, he's done podcasts. Oh, he, we can put him on camera. And so it's yeah. just putting those. How has in. social media affected? I mean, in particular, not Facebook, because, you know, everybody's yeah. a journalist on Facebook. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the brevity, the speed and celerity of, of uh, Snapchat and Twitter. And the compelling journalists to be fast and not necessarily right. What impact has that had on the industry? You know, I think it's I think it's been really tough, right? Because I think that a few things are true at the same time. The first is that the industry itself has lost a lot of its control over the individual journalist or reporter, right? That we all have our own brands and names and followings, right? In the old, back in the old days, you wouldn't know who the reporters even were. They were just names at the top of a newspaper thing, right? Now we know what they look like, what music they listen to, if they're watching the basketball game tonight, right? Because we're all posting yep. all the time. Yeah. Who they're dating, what's going on. You know? And so the and so the um so because of that, there's this tension inside journalism of the bosses who like are like, stop doing this. And and the people who are like, I, I want to be out here, I want to be talking. I think that a few things can be true. For me, you know, I'm a digital native. I came up on social media. A digital a, native, I like right? that. Like, you know, that it, I, I didn't have to be taught how to use, you know, this is what it was. We had Facebook in high school, right? Yeah, we had, exactly. We got, we got Twitter in college. It was all MySpace is MySpace is old for us. Yes, exactly, right? It's yeah. like that kind of, and so because of that, it's just natural for me to be in these spaces. But I think a few things are true, right? The first is that you can build a following, you can build a reputation, and that can be really helpful. I get sources on social media. People reach out to me all the time saying, hey, have you seen this story? Or do you know this? Or can I tell you a thing? Extremely yep. helpful. Work spreads that way, right? People are reading stuff because they're encountering it. But what's also true is to be a professional in these spaces, and I think actually especially be a Black professional in these spaces, you have to remember that social media sometimes feels like a group chat, but it's a billboard 
right? We're sitting here. We feel like we're talking to each other and we're talking. And- I always remind <laughs> folks certain days, like, don't let your social media get you fired today. Like, that's, that should be your goal. Well, and, and what we also have to remember is it's not even just about that, which is true. It's also about the sense to which you have all types of other people who are seeing it and you have no idea what they're perceiving, right? We, right. we, we all know that we code switch. When we walk into some meetings, we Correct. act a certain way. When it's you and I talking, we act, well, social media is one of those where we got the pressure to talk like it's just you and me, except every person in the world is watching, watching it, right? Is watching, have yeah. it's some, it's, I remember one time I was at the Boston Globe. I was a kid, you know, I was young. I was covering a casino. They were, they're figuring out they're gonna open a casino. And so I had a call on a Monday morning with, like the casino, the guy who's trying to open the casino, one of the richest people in Massachusetts, right? And I was called with him at 10 a.m. And the weekend before, there had been a Kanye West concert that I went to with my boys. It was Yeezus tour, it was Kanye, Kendrick was opening. Hmm. And I had like live tweeted the concert, right? And I remember I get on the phone with this white guy worth billions of dollars. And he's like, so how was the concert? <laughs> and like I just had this moment where I was like, Oh yeah, you all, all y'all can see this. And it was just like this very interesting. And again, I, I probably would still do, you know, but it was just, it's just a good reminder sometimes that, that it's a billboard. It's a billboard. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast. Let me ask you a question about, uh, get you to opine on this um, through your experiences. I want to talk about the failed coup and insurrection at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Um, When I talk to black journalists and black elected officials, nothing about the insurrection was shocking to us. I mean, we didn't necessarily predict it, but nothing about it surprised us. But I feel like white journalists, white commentators, and elected officials seem legitimately shocked. What do you think explains why so many people seem to be in a state of shock about something that a lot of people, including Black folks in particular, saw coming? I think that very often the... I think Black people in general have a more expansive understanding of what's possible especially in the negative direction, right? And so what I mean by that is you have a lot of white journalists, white commentators, white elected officials who are sitting here going, people would be so racist that they would vote for Donald Trump. Remember that in 16, where all these people are like rendering their garments, like how would this work? And and suddenly it pivots, well, it can't be the racism, it has to be something else, right? Or 
wait, they would storm the Capitol? This is shocking. And this is, and we're all here like, well, I mean, this is what happens. We know how this works. <laughs> we and, so, and so I think sometimes there's, there's Black people have a, are less precious about our society or about what's possible mm. about the reality, right? They would breach the Capitol. And it's like, yeah, remember when they bombed our whole community? Like, 40 years ago. Remember when Dylan, when Dylan Roof walked into a church? Church and shot Wednesday? down worshipers. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. you know, we're just not like, <laughs> they're on the Senate floor. And we're like, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, like, y'all, yeah. Y'all know I mean, what these folks, have you listened to what they say? Do you know correct. what? They've been like, telling you they wanted to do this. And you and the, the man up <laughs> top gave them every reason to do it. it. Told them to march down there. I mean, I remember, I remember being with a colleague the day after the election at 16 at the, at the Washington Post. I go into the Post. And, the, and I didn't even have anything to do, right? It was just one of those, sometimes as a journalist, when something happens or you need an explanation, it's like, all right, let me make some phone calls. I'm, I'm just gonna go to the office. Let me talk to people, let me, it gives you something to, to do. So I'm in the office and I remember one of my colleagues, great reporter, good woman, and she says to me like, I just really can't believe that so many people would be like this, like would be, would be fine with this. And I was like, these people email me after every story. Like, I'm actually not surprised that this many people exist out here, right? <laughs> when you work in media, one thing they always say is never read the comments. And that actually should have told us something, right? That we can't write a story about puppies at the zoo without comment three becoming racist. Exactly. That should like, tell us something about the populace in the country. Well, not only <laughs> like, that, but I mean, that's who rioted. The comment section is what insurrected last week. That's, I mean, no, that's exactly, ex- right? <laughs> yeah. Those people are out here. and They've been telling us they're out here from jump. Yeah. And and the, but again, I think sometimes there's a there's a defensiveness, right? People don't want it to be that way. People speaking don't speaking want. speaking of that though, we'd be remiss if I did, in our discussion if if we didn't talk about or if we'd be remiss in our discussion of the Capitol if we didn't talk about the prevalence of white supremacist far right militancy in law enforcement, which yeah. is tab. People definitely don't want to talk about that. Talk about your work in covering law enforcement, race, and police violence, and how that is intersected with far-right militancy within the law enforcement community? That was a low, I felt like Chris Cuomo asking that question. Yeah, right? It was, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's really interesting because it's the intersection of the work I do. You know, at this very moment, when I get off this call, I'm gonna go back to finishing a book manuscript that's about the rise in white supremacy. We're gonna gonna get to that, yeah. And so so the, um, but I've worked on, um, since Ferguson, on law enforcement and race in this country, right? I was in Ferguson for three months, then it was in my hometown of Cleveland with Tamir Rice and um, in Norbert Charleston with Walter Scott. Um, and, and, I, and I, for a long time, have covered this. And one thing that's been true, and it's hard for us to grapple with, but one thing we know to be true is that returning war veterans and members of law enforcement are uniquely susceptible to these white supremacist extremist groups and to conspiracy theories. Uh, we've seen studies after this. And so one thing we have to think about in this moment that we're in, right, this generation currently, is we have returning war veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan who have served their country and many of whom are dealing with levels of trauma and drama and confusion. And, and by the way, fought in relatively unpopular wars, which adds a different level to that trauma when they get back, who might be susceptible to some of this. Uh, but what we also see is in law enforcement, there have been studies, there have been any number of cases where you have members of law enforcement themselves who are members of these groups at worst or extremely sympathetic to these groups at best. Even those folks who don't, who aren't in that bucket, one thing I think was definitely at play in the capital insurrection is that there's a skepticism 
again of how bad white people can potentially be. Yeah. This sense of, well, these folks look like us. We know law enforcement uh, in many cases is majority white. They're saying they support the police. Their politics are more conservative. Our politics, there's this sense of they must be okay. They're not going to be dangerous. They're not going to be violent versus the skepticism towards left-wing protests, be it Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter. or Well, they're violent. They don't like the cops. They don't. And so what you end up seeing is there's a level of leeway given mm-hmm. often to these right-wing groups that you would never see given to a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters. I mean, we saw, I mean, you saw the imagery. You saw the National Guard standing on watch in front of the Capitol when a Black Lives Matter protest in response to systemic injustice and racism, when the, when the, the I don't even know what the hell the insurrectionists were responding to, but they were let into the Capitol willy-nilly by Capitol Police. And I think that speaks to your point. Well, exactly. And, and, and so why, knowing that this demonstration was going to happen, that Donald Trump and all these people were calling all these people to the Capitol for weeks in advance, they had printed T-shirts, right? This was not organic. This wasn't the cops just killed someone, so we're all out in the streets. Oh, oh but, but talk to this real quick, though, Wesley. <laughs> so this was all organized by a black Sammy Davis Jr. lookalike. <laughs> like, I, I'm trying to, Eddie Kane, Ali Eddie Kane. I, I know, in a black, well, I don't know, what is Ali? I don't know what Ali I, is. I think he is black. Is my understanding. I, I thought he was black, but he 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 got something else in him. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But my my impression is that he is black. Is he's, my he's, understanding? He's brown. Okay, so we yeah, got he's a, clearly we, brown. Yeah, he's exactly. clearly brown. So we have a brown dude who organized a stop the steal Man, rally. He does, he does look like Sammy Davis. <laughs> <laughs> he does look with <laughs> with with, uh, with white supremacists and and talking not only about him organizing it, which is surreal. But why do you see, and I think hopefully you, you, if you dig in this a lot in your book, don't give away a whole chapter, but why do you see this nexus, we've seen it throughout history, between white supremacist or vitriol anti-black racism and anti-Semitism? Because everywhere you see a Confederate flag, you see these mm-hmm. uh, six, what is it, six WME shirts, which uh, yeah. six million wasn't enough, which is despicable. You see swastikas you see all of this other stuff talk about that nexus that you see coming out of this of, of course I, I think that i think one thing that's important for us to think about when we think about white supremacists and the white supremacist movement in america and internationally right is that it's not specific, it, it's a broad conspiracy right that it's about all of these different steps and these different pieces right the white supremacists don't just hate black people they right. don't just hate uh, they also hate Jews. They also hate immigrants. They also hate feminists. It's right. this big, there's there's almost a, it, and we have to understand it that way. Now, that's not to say that like anti-Black racism isn't important and unique and a thing to be looked at, that anti-Semitism is important. But I think sometimes those of us who are in our, in these groups, we have to fight so hard for the injustices we face to be listened to that sometimes we overlook. We get, sel- we get selfish in our struggle. Correct. And we overlook the place where there's complete, where like we have the exact same enemies. They hate all of us, right? It's Correct. Like, <laughs> and so the, the basic the basic conspiracy here, right, of the white supremacist movement in, in, in the way it's organized. That's not to say every one of these guys out there believes every part of this. Or, but look, they believe the white race is under threat, that they're going to go extinct, that this was a white country. It's been stolen from them. Um, that initially it was the black people who were stealing their women and intermarrying. Uh, now it's the immigrants coming over the border and it's going to mm-hmm. change. It's an invasion. And all of this anti-Semitism historically has always been a conspiracy theory. 
that the Jews are this evil race of, of people who are race traitors. They're supposed to be white, but they're not acting white. And so the Jews are, are helping the refugees in so they can dilute. You, you remember the Tree of Life um, shooting in Pittsburgh? The synagogue. Yeah, the Tree yes. of Life synagogue. Yeah. The conspiracy, the reason he chose that synagogue was because it was the time when there was a big conversation about refugees coming into the country. And he chose a synagogue that had been helping place refugees. And he writes in his delusional, unhinged Facebook post about, you all aren't going to ruin our country anymore by letting these people in. And so again, there's this, there are these intersections between this Nazi conspiracy theory, this anti-Black conspiracy theory, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim. And it's a threat because again, what the white supremacists are at war with is multiracial democracy. What they are advocating for is an explicit system of white supremacy, where, like, where it's a racial caste, where white people run the country. And immigrants, Jews, Black people, were all fall beneath that. And so it's unsurprising when you've studied it that when you glance at these marches, at these organizations, that you see this mixture of all these groups, Nazi Nazis, Klan, uh, online conspiracy theorists, anti-immigration people, and that's a lot of, time of the Trump people, because they're all serving the same master, right? They all want a country that is explicitly white supremacist. That's crazy. I hope people are listening to that. I, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about where we are as a country on the heels of what we saw this summer. And you've been watching a lot of these. You've, uh, you're not that old, but you've been, it's, our generation's crazy because we've seen yeah. a lot, but you've been around for a lot of these uprisings, riots, protests. But was there a different feel to this summer's protest in response to George and Brianna? Do you feel like these protests moved the needle? And is there something that we actually are doing on police violence now, subsequent to those protests that we weren't doing in previous protests? So, so one thing I think is true is that the moment gets all the attention, right? Mm -hmm. When the people are in the streets, it gets all the attention, right? And then eventually people aren't in the streets anymore because the next thing happens or the next thing happens. And there's this, this inclination for us to say, oh, well, it all went away and what happened? But there's a long period of time where you know, change takes time. But even when you change a policy or implement a new program, you have to actually do the implementation. And so, so, for example, when you look back historically at Ferguson, right, one of the major legacy of Ferguson was body cameras. Almost every mm -hmm. police department in the country got body right. cameras. Now, body cameras did not stop police violence. <laughs> they did not. Um, in fact, the studies show it's not. There was this kind of naive thinking that if you put cameras on cops, it would either make them do fewer bad things or prove that they weren't actually doing that many bad things. What it did in reality was it just showed us how many bad things were actually happening because now there was a camera running. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that said, right, that is an that does you know so suddenly we're seeing more of the bad. It, it, that changes the the national conversation. When you look at Brianna and George, um, and Rashad Brooks in Atlanta, and by the way, Ahmaud Aubrey happens in this period of time in Georgia. You've got the Central Park lady and Christian Cooper in in you know like I learned a lot. I learned a lot in that incident. I mean, I first right? of all, I didn't know I didn't know birding was a thing, but I, I and and I didn't know we had black ones either. So I learned no, a lot look, about man, that. Christian Cooper, I think, is the most interesting man in America. Right, like I guess, it, like like when they were right, flesh that out for me. Yeah, go ahead. So, I so this so this man is like a black birder who also. I think like writes graphic novels and does yeah, comics. 
and also was hyper involved in like an LGBT black pack in New York that helped with like gay pay- marriage. Pack. Like this man had just like done all. He was like this Renaissance man, and now like, in I retirement. Think, I think that one of the most interesting people in all of in all of the country is Stacey Abrams. Well, I'll give you that. I'll give and you I, that. I think from just people, people don't really know Stacey. And no. people also don't know her writings either. I mean, she was she's a whole she's the best writer that we know. I mean, she wrote <laughs> she, she she literally wrote novels. Novels. No, an excellent writer. By the way, she's been involved for real, for real. Involved. And she's the second smartest sister in her family. Her sister's a federal court judge. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Not she's not even number one. But and the other thing is she's become this like resistance meme almost which is just odd to watch you know like, but the you know you know it's 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 very interesting you know we know this as black professionals and public figures it's very interesting once white people fall in love with you in a way and like how like how like weird and Correct. dramatic it can be and it, you know people are posting like you know they're having posters like do whatever stacy abrams says or like, <laughs> wwsd what would stacy yeah, do yeah. i know and, yeah and it's like this very strange you know, but the thing people don't realize about Stacey is she's been in this work forever. There's video of her as a college activist doing this work. Oh, I, I know. She, she, and people think that she just flipped this in one. No, and, I remember you know, She's sitting, been doing this since 15, 14, 15. I, I remember sitting with Stacey Abrams and it must have been 14 or 15. And she's in the, in the legislature in Georgia and we're sitting over a breakfast and she's laying out her How We Make Georgia Blue plan. Exactly. Right? This is almost a decade ago. Exactly. And she's it's like, crazy. And I'm a Washington Post reporter and I'm like, this lady's crazy. Georgia Blue. What's you, you know, I'm, I'm eating the breakfast. I'm sitting there, right? And it, this has been a long pathway. And by the way, a pathway that builds on the work of people like Fanny Lou Hamer, Jesse Jackson, yeah. right? Like this idea of you community the, organizing. Like, and yes. that, but you know, Stacey does something that I hope Democrats learn from, which is that. Democrats always try to find the candidate for the people instead of organizing the people and then allowing a good candidate to come through. Like we never focus on the electorate. We always focus on the candidate. Of course. And I think this is so important, especially again, you look at these Southern states and and frankly, even these Midwestern states where you have big black populations who are largely disenfranchised or, or uninvolved in politics but who are very likely Democratic voters, if they voted, it would be for the Democrat. And instead of putting in the work to mobilize those people, get them in the process, get them registered, remove systemic barriers, it's, well, if we find another Barack Obama, we're good. I know, really. I mean, listen, what we, this is all we need. We need a JFK, a Bill Clinton, or Barack Obama. I'm like, what the, I mean, what do you, what do you want? Like, I mean, or, or you could invest $10 million and register in every black person in Mississippi. And then guess and you, what? Right. Like, you know, <laughs> so before I let you go, I, I, I got to ask you this briefly, because I got two more questions for you. One is very broad. This is very specific. And I, I, I can't wait for your answer on this. How do we reform policing in the U.S.? Like, what are Wes Lowry's must-haves for reforming American policing? Or is the answer not reform at all, but something like abolition? You know, look, I, I think that I think the answer is something that whatever term you want to use, I think we need to rethink American policing. I use reimagine, but I Yeah, hear. right. Like in this, you know, and whether you want to use the word abolish or abolition, I could give a thesis paper on that bill, or if you want to use the word reform. The, the point is that the way it is functioning today does not work, does not serve all Americans, clearly, that all the statistics show that, and there's clearly and obviously deep discontent. I think that, I think there's a few clear and obvious things from the very beginning, right? I think, first of all, we have to 
have a different level of transparency and information collection and dissemination from our police, the amount of things we don't know that reporters and journalists have to go figure out, such as how many people got shot by the police last year. And we like, only know, and we not, we don't know that statistic, but for, yeah. we were keeping up with that for a long period of time because of the work that you did. Yeah, the Washington Post and others. And so like the issue is that shouldn't work that way. As we all know, right, we live in a, we live in an era of big data, right? And we make policy based on, we measure all these little different things. The police, one of the most important functions of government, we don't have the information. I think that crazy. helps. That's crazy. Two, the local level, we got to deal with um, police union contracts in a real sustained way that what we don't realize is there are 18,000 police departments in the country. They all negotiate their own rules that govern them with their cities. And often that gets no scrutiny. There's no pressure to that. You got cases where the police don't have to, um, you can shoot and kill someone and you don't have to even give an interview about what you did or why you did it for 48 hours, sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks. There are rules that purge police personnel files of any negative thing about them. The, right. the actual rules that govern police are all types of screwed up. I think those are two of the biggest, most important things. Um, and, but beyond that, I think at the, at the highest level, we have to decide as a nation what we want the police to do. Are we here for law and justice and safety or are we here for order, right? We're, we're talking right after MLK Day and um, in his letter from Birmingham jail, he famously talks about people who want, who when, when they think of justice and peace, they think about it as the presence of, of, of order, the absence of tension, right? Correct. Um, as opposed to the presence of justice, right? What do we want our police doing? Do we want them maintaining order? Or do we want them providing the presence of justice? That's what I mean. Okay. You give people something to chew on. Last question for you, because I know you're busy. You got to go talk to Gil and everybody else. Tell everybody <laughs> yeah. else over there at, at, at CBS. CBS. I say, what's happening? Um, what's next for you? You know, a little bit of everything. So we got something cooking up at CBS uh, with 60 Minutes. So we should be announcing sometime soon in the spring. I'm finalizing. A, do you have your uh, SAG card? I do not actually have my SAG card. You need to get your SAG card, I man, because what you need to do is have your agent reach out. I need to see you on some NCIS. I need to Look, see you just guess, guess, guess spotting, just doing just like pop, a, a- Just popping up, exactly. A special, like, the, arrest him, arrest that reporter yeah, right the, there. That, yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about, I'm going to do, do the Donald Trump thing. I'm going to just start popping up popping around up. comms. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, you know, so we've got some stuff going with CBS. We got, like I said, I'm working on this book about the rise in white supremacy following Barack Obama. And I also got, can't say it publicly yet, but sometime in the next month, got a really big project, uh, co-authoring something with someone who everyone knows who they are. That's going to be really awesome. And so that's coming soon. And so a bunch of balls in the air. In the meantime, just trying to stay safe uh, through this inauguration and through this transition. <laughs> and hanging be safe out. up there, my brother. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Everybody show your love for none other than Wesley Lowry. What's going on, man? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Thank you, brother. Man, that episode was great. Um, and before I let you go, I wanted to talk about uh, Kansas City Chiefs offense coordinator Eric Bieniemy, who despite leading the NFL's most prolific offense for the past few seasons and winning a Super Bowl, he still doesn't have a head coaching job in the NFL. All while people like new Philadelphia Eagles coach Nick Sirianni and new Atlanta Falcons head coach Arthur Smith, with far less impressive resumes, get hired for head coaching jobs. Now there are still vacancies that Bieniemy can fill. But the word on the street is that Bienemy doesn't, quote, interview well. But we're told that during the Eagles interview with Sirianni, he didn't even wear a suit, but he got the job. They actually said that because Bienemy doesn't actually call the plays in Kansas City, 
He shares play calling duties with Andy Reid. He can't take credit for the Chiefs' success. But other white coaches under Andy Reid, like former Eagles coach Doug Peterson, worked under a similar agreement and got hired. BNME hasn't. So we all know what this is about. White GMs and white owners don't want to hand over the keys to a highly successful black coach when they interview younger white coaches they prefer. And that's a problem. It's not too late for Eric Bieniemy, but as more teams hire their new coaches, the window closes for Bieniemy, and that has to be a blight on the NFL that needs to be fixed. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Thursday. Good.